Hey guys, it's Lisa Lillian, also known as Hungry Girl here just to let you know, if you are listening to this and you don't currently subscribe to this podcast, you should. So wherever you're listening from, click subscribe. And also, if you don't get our daily emails, that's a big mistake. So go to hungry-girl.com to sign up for our free daily emails. And if you're bored every other Thursday night, I have a live show on Amazon. So you can go to hungry-girl.com slash Amazon live. Thanks. Hope you love the episode. Hey there, it is me, Lisa Lillian, also known as Hungry Girl. Today's True the Right Thing podcast, I am going to be solo without my usual counterparts, Jamie and Mikey, but I'm also going to be joined by a very special guest. He is someone that you know very well if you are familiar with everything in our world because he has popped up in the Hungry Girl Daily emails and he was even a guest on the second Hungry Girl cruise if you were lucky enough to join us for that. He's super smart. He's amazingly relatable. And every time we have him on a podcast, you guys go nuts because his information is so fantastic. He's a health journalist with a PhD in public health, and he's the author of four fantastic books on health and wellness. His latest book, Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works, was winner of the 2022 Best Book Awards in the Nutrition and Fitness category. Wow, go you, Robert. Oops, I gave it away. Yep, it's Dr. Robert J. Davis joining me today. Very excited to have him. By the way, in addition to his books, he hosts a popular healthy skeptic video series where he examines the science behind popular health claims. And you can find him all over social media, but today you can find him sitting right next to me. We're going to be doing a little bit more myth blasting. You know, we love that. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. Robert J. Davis. Okay, Robert, I want to jump in first by talking about sweeteners. And I don't even want to call them artificial sweeteners, but we can touch on that, but also natural sweeteners, anything that's not sugar. And then the recent news, and I would dare to say controversy over erythritol. Erythritol, yeah. So let's first talk about erythritol a little bit. And if you can tell people what it is exactly and then what the recent news is. Sure. Erythritol is a sugar substitute, a so-called sugar alcohol uh, but it's a misnomer nomer because it's neither a sugar nor an alcohol, but it has fewer calories than table sugar. And it's in, you find erythritol in many uh, processed foods, many packaged foods. Um, there are a number of uh, sugar alcohols. They all end in OL. So you hear about mannitol, maltitol, xylitol, sorbitol, things like that. So erythritol is one of the most commonly used. Um, the recent controversy, that a lot of headlines over this, because erythritol in a study that was rep widely reported was linked to cardiovascular events, heart disease, strokes, things like that. A lot of scary headlines. And people thought, okay, I need to stop using this. What's the deal? Well, the deal is that that study was extremely flawed uh, in a number of ways, or at least limited. And I think that a lot of the headlines uh, did not, in the stories, did not accurately reflect the limitations of that study. 
And so the bottom line is that we have a pretty large body of evidence on erythritol over many years that show it's safe. This was the first study that suggested it might be harmful. Um, that doesn't mean that it's, we know it's absolutely safe. There's going to be more research and there should be to try to look further into this. But based on this particular study, I think it's unreasonable to conclude that erythritol is harmful. And so no study, in fact, should ever be the decisive factor. So I think it's important to remember that this was just one study. It was limited. And so right now we cannot say that erythritol is harmful. Okay. I have so many questions and I don't know if you can answer them, but maybe try your best. First question, what do you think was flawed potentially about the study or what factors may have contributed to this sort of false conclusion, if it is a false conclusion? So think about how this study was done. Let's talk about how the study was done. So what happened was the researchers found a correlation between the amount of erythritol in people's blood with this increased risk of heart attacks and strokes. It was a one-time measurement of erythritol in people's blood. They did not measure how much erythritol people actually consumed. They did not measure people's eating patterns. They just measured the, the amount in their blood. How, how, wait, do we manufacture erythritol? Like well, how that's else the key get point. So yes, erythritol can get into your body two ways. You can eat foods that contain erythritol, but also our bodies actually produce erythritol. It's part of glucose metabolism so that our bodies actually produce it. So we don't know whether those levels were elevated because people ate a lot of erythritol or because it just so happens that their bodies produce more. Now, it could be these people and all these subjects were at higher risk of heart disease because they either had heart attacks or were at high risk of cardiovascular events. So what it could be is that these people, because they'd had heart attacks, for example, their bodies produce more erythritol. So it's possible that it wasn't that is it that wasn't the erythritol. Is that a thing that makes you produce We don't know erythritol? that, but the oh. point is that we don't know. So we can't say for certain that the erythritol itself led to their higher rates of cardiovascular events. So the point is that it's hard to draw any firm conclusions. Now, what the researchers did do was they did several follow-up experiments. They, uh, they looked at, they added erythritol to plasma, human blood, and saw that it became stickier. They injected mice with erythritol and saw that they were more likely to get blood clots. But we know from that that doesn't necessarily mean that it translates into humans. Just because something is true in test tubes or in lab animals doesn't necessarily translate into real live human beings. So I think, again, the point is that we have to look at the research with caution. At best, it generates a hypothesis that maybe there are some concerns about erythritol, but there needs to be much, much, much more research until we can draw any firm conclusions about it. Okay, that makes sense. Have we tested any of the other sugar alcohols in a similar fashion? N to my knowledge, no. So that the other sugar alcohols that, that is, as far as we know, the research that has been done have not been, uh, have not come up with any negative conclusions about uh, health impact. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So what do you think about, um, the safety of natural sweeteners like stevia or some of these sugar alcohols and even monk fruit versus the, what people call artificial sweeteners like sucralose and, um, like ACE-K equal sweet and low to sort of put the consumer brands on those. Right. So the evidence for, let's, let's look at stevia, for example. The evidence for that so far, there's no evidence that it's harmful. Um, so far, it looks pretty good in terms of its safety profile. Same thing from monk fruit. Um, again, there hasn't been a lot of research on the safety, but it's taken from a fruit, from monk fruit, and so it's considered safe. Um, so those two, along with erythritol, have traditionally been the safest alternatives. 
uh, when it comes to sugar substitutes. Now, the others that you mentioned, uh, certainly uh, Splenda, sucralose, um, there have been some potentially concerning studies about its effect on blood sugar in humans, um, so that there's some concern about that. Also, some animal studies have linked it to cancer. Same thing with aspartame, same thing with other artificial sweeteners. Now, that said, we also know, as I said earlier, that just because something causes cancer in lab animals doesn't mean that it causes cancer in people. It's all the, do the dose makes the poison, as they say. And so in many of these studies, huge amounts of the sweetener are fed to lab animals and it leads to cancer. And so we can't definitively conclude that when people eat or consume these sweeteners in normal amounts, then they're going to get cancer or be at increased risk of cancer. But that said, there are some potential safety concerns with those other sweeteners, including ACE-K as well. And, and eating sugar instead is really not necessarily a great choice either because I'm assuming that brings a whole array of health issues as well. Absolutely. So you're right. The answer is not then just to start eating sugar. It's complicated because the World Health Organization recently said that people should limit all sweeteners, whether sugar or sugar <laughs> substitutes. That's not terribly Bland helpful. Bland and bitter food only, right, please. Right, because uh, we, we, we have to typically add some sweetness to most foods or a lot of foods, particularly packaged foods. So I think that um, the best approach is to uh, not overdo it on anything, whether it's sugar or any of these sweeteners. And if you're going to try to go with what we know now to be, at least we think right now is the safest, then we'd be talking about stevia, monk fruit, and potentially erythritol. Okay. And, and, so, the, and the other sugar alcohols. And back to sugar itself. I, you know, you hear all of this about like pure cane sugar versus this sugar, raw sugar versus high fructose corn syrup. Is there really a difference? Does, does the body react differently to those types of so-called healthier sugars versus what people have vilified, like high fructose corn syrup is the devil? Is that really true? Uh, the short answer is no. For the most part, to the body, sugar is sugar, whether it's honey, molasses, brown sugar, table sugar, uh, high fructose corn syrup. Um, the body metabolizes it generally the same. And so I think when people say, oh, well, I see it has no high fructose corn syrup, it must be healthier because it's got regular sugar or it's got some other sweetener, that's not necessarily true. So I think we have to uh, be careful in not allowing certain claims that certain sugars are healthier than others to make us believe that certain products are healthier because they have something other than table sugar. Do you know where those rumors for lack of a better word to describe them, came from? Like, why do some people think regular pure cane sugar or raw sugar is better for you than high fructose corn syrup? Maybe because it sounds better. Maybe because it's people know that or they believe, and it's certainly true that we eat too much sugar and table sugar is the classic example of sugar. So something like brown sugar sounds better or evaporated cane juice. That sounds good, right? That <laughs> sounds said, like some of the badness just went away or, into the right. air. <laughs> or, or um, you know, uh, or other words that sound more helpful. But I think a lot of it is marketing. A lot of it is people's perception that some alternative, whether it's honey or molasses or something else, is going to be better. And conversely, that something like high fructose corn syrup, because it sounds like this evil concoction from a lab, is going to be worse. And maybe because it's cheaper and a lot of like packaged food companies use it. Right. And that's certainly a legitimate point that people make about high fructose corn syrup because it is in a lot of products that we eat when you don't think of them as having sugar. We don't think of them as uh, sweet 
And so we're talking about pasta, bread, all kinds of things that we don't think of as being sweet, but they do contain in many cases high fructose corn syrup. At least they have in the past. Now, more manufacturers are removing it because they sense that consumers don't want that. But nevertheless, it is in a lot of packaged foods and it's there for to, to preserve. It's, it's cheaper than sugar and also to uh, allow the products to, uh, to last longer. But when you think about the cumulative amounts we get, if we eat all these uh, processed packaged foods, that can add up to a lot of sugar uh, from high fructose corn syrup. So it's something we should be aware of. Right, which also leads to too many calories and weight gain and obesity and all of those things and the health problems that come along with that, which leads me to the next topic that I'd like to chat about. And that is the whole new world of diet culture where people are saying weight loss is bad and you can be healthy at any size and that we shouldn't ever focus on counting calories, losing weight, and there's no correlation between um, being obese and having health issues and all of these things that make my head spin and also make me feel really sad because I don't believe any of those things are true. And I wanted to hear it from you because I know you'll have a lot to say on that subject. Yeah, it's an important topic. So there's no question that diet culture and the way that people have been led to believe that, that they can be thin, that going on the next best, the next greatest diet can be the road to skinniness is harmful. When people go on diet after diet after diet, um, we know that leads to all kinds of harms. It leads to physical harm through weight cycling, yo-yo dieting, as many listeners have experienced, I'm sure. Right, like um, gaining and losing large yes, amounts of weight. It, it leads to obviously emotional harm, self-blame when the diets don't work long-term, to depression, anxiety, um, to unhealthy relationship with food, all kinds of problems. I thought you were going to say unhealthy relationships with spouses. <laughs> well, maybe that too. could be. But all kinds of problems, we know that diet and diet culture. And we also just know that diets don't work long term. Uh, so there's no question that diet culture can be very harmful. Now, what's risen in opposition to diet culture is sort of the counterpoint to diet culture is this idea of body positivity, health at every size, which on their surface are good. They teach that we should reject diet culture. We should accept our bodies for what they are and that should, we should focus on our health uh, overall, rather than being obsessed with our weight. All in all, good ideas. However, there are proponents within those movements who say weight doesn't matter at all, that we should not worry about weight because our weight doesn't affect our health. And I think that is equally harmful. That idea is equally harmful to the ideas behind diet culture, which everybody can achieve, achieve thinness and everybody should go on a diet. So the problem with that is obviously it's, it's true. We know this. There is there are mounds of evidence that obesity is linked to a number of health issues, everything from diabetes and heart disease and cancer to worse outcomes from COVID and um, can uh, negatively impact people's quality of life. No question about that. And so to deny that or to downplay that risk is a disservice to people. So we need to find a happy medium between diet culture, which focuses on dieting and skinniness, and this other idea that weight doesn't matter because the truth is somewhere in between. And so I like to think of the idea, I like to approach this, that we think of weight as something that we, we try to achieve a healthy weight for us. And that's going to be different for everybody. And a healthy weight is something that is realistic and attainable and sustainable for you. 
It may not be, you're not going to be skinny necessarily. It's not going to be your lowest weight ever, but it's a weight for you. And it may not, and it may be different at different points in your life, but a weight for you right now, that's a healthy weight for you. That's attainable and sustainable. Um, and we see weight through the prism of health, not as a matter of cosmetics, but something, how do you have a weight that's going to be healthy for you that along with other indicators of health is going to be relevant. So you look, you think about your blood pressure, you think about your cholesterol, you think about your blood sugar. Weight is just one other indicator of health, not the only one, not end all be all, but one of several indicators. And if we can see weight that way, rather than the way that diet culture sees it, um, I think people uh, can arrive at sort of a, an equilibrium when it comes to living with, uh, with, with this idea of achieving a healthy weight. Interesting. And what about, I, I've heard, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but people say the fewer calories that you take in overall, that you will live longer. Do you think there's any truth to that? There's certainly evidence from animal studies. Um, animals, when, when everything from dogs to monkeys and other animals, uh, lab animals, uh, the fewer calories they're fed, calorie restriction, um, they have lower rates of chronic diseases. They also live longer. Now, and there are a number of people, not, well, I, not, they're not a number of people. There's some people who practice calorie restriction, severe calorie restriction, believing that they're going to be healthier and living longer. Um, I think the question for that is what kind of quality of life are they going to have if they never eat? It's possible that eating fewer calories and severely restricting calories can have positive effects, but also we know it can have negative effects. For women, it can interfere with um, their menstrual periods. It can have uh, effects on your ability to withstand cold, on your body fat. So there uh, uh, perhaps negative effects on the immune system. So eating too few calories clearly uh, can have negative effects. And so um, right now we can't say for certain that it will help people live longer. Um, perhaps there will be experiments. These Some of the experiments underway will give us more information in the future. Okay. So basically, I just want to wrap this up. To say that he uh, health is unrelated to weight or being at a healthy weight is not really reasonable and probably not true. That's A. And also going on and off fad diets is also bad. And the best thing to do would be to try to maintain a healthy weight for you, which doesn't have to be, it probably could be even a little over what people think they should be weighing. Like what is a healthy BMI and how can people figure out what their BMI is? Well, that's a whole nother can of worms. That's a controversial issue because BMI, um, that's body mass index, body mass index, which just takes into account height and weight. And so it's considered a, a very crude instrument for determining what you're supposed to weigh. You know, there are three categories. There's uh, sort of normal weight, overweight, and then obese. There's also underweight too. So I guess there are four, but anyway, What's that? Uh, which, which most <laughs> of us, very few of us fall right. into that category, mm -hmm. but some people do. Um, th so the idea here is that, um, you, uh, is, is the problem is with, with the problem with BMI is that it doesn't take into account factors such as muscle mass, uh, bone structure, race, age, ethnicity, and all those are relevant as to sort of, um, at what weight, at what BMI it's going to be unhealthy. But there's a range anyway, right? There's a range. And so, um, interestingly studies show that people who are in the overweight range, um, as opposed to the obese range, the overweight range actually have lived longer in some cases than people who are in the nor quote normal range. So that there seems to be at least according to some studies, some advantage. Now, there's a lot of controversy, a lot of 
researchers say that that's not necessarily valid. But the point is that where we really get concerned about health risks the most is when it comes to obesity, people who are in the upper levels of BMI. And there, I think it's pretty clear that BMI is a good indicator of increased risk of health problems. I think when you go below the obese range, it's more controversial. Is there a BMI calculator online that you recommend or that you like? I think any BMI calculator works. You just, I think there are a number of them. You just plug in the the variables and it'll spit out your BMI. So you just Google in B, BMI calculator and people will find it. Yes. Yes. What is the secret to making great toast? Oh, you're just going to go in with the hard hitting questions. I'm Dan Pashman from The Sporkful. We like to say it's not for foodies, it's for eaters. We use food to learn about culture, history, and science. There was the time we looked into allegations of discrimination at Bon Appetit, or when I spent three years inventing a new pasta shape. It's a complex noodle that you put together. Every episode of The Sporkful, you're going to learn something, feel something, and laugh. The Sporkful from Stitcher. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk a little about metabolism. A lot of people who listen to this podcast, people who read... Hungry Girl emails and who are fans of our recipes are sort of getting older with our brand. I mean, I've been around 20 years and a lot of them are approaching menopause or have gone through menopause. And I hear time and time again that their metabolism is slowed down. Now, is that really a thing? Is, are there studies that show that the older you get, the harder it is to lose weight, the easier it is to gain weight? And how on earth can we counteract that if we can? So... There are actually some very recent research suggesting that metabolism in middle age generally does not slow down, that metabolism stays remarkably stable between the ages of, say, 20 and 60. And beyond age 60, it starts to slow down gradually. But between in, in, in middle age, it generally stays stable. Now, that contradicts, as you say, a lot of the experience that people have when they find, particularly when women I know hit menopause, they find that they gain weight and have a harder time losing weight. Um, also, their body composition changes. That may be due more to drop in estrogen level, which can affect uh, uh, body composition, um, than to decrease in metabolism. Interesting. So what happens when your estrogen is low? So it changes just as in men, as they get older, the testosterone decreases. It means there's more body fat and less muscle mass. Does it make you hungrier? <laughs> it could be for some people. Okay. It, it, every, obviously, or maybe it's anxiety and depression that makes people hungrier. I don't know. The, the effects vary, yes. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's often thought as to why um, there are changes in body composition. Now, you asked about increasing your, your metabolism. For people that want to maintain or increase their metabolism, there are some things that can help. So the most important of those is exercise. Um, exercise can rev up metabolism. And it's important to, to remember it's not just aerobic activities like walking. It's also strength training that really matter. Oh, building muscle can Yes, help. building muscle. So, the, so that, that, that doesn't mean you have to go to the gym and lift heavy weights. Um, any kind of resistance training, you can do that at home with body weight. You can do it with bands. You can do it with cans of food at home. But doing a program of resistance training does matter because muscle burns more calories than fat does. So the more muscle you have, the more calories you'll burn. So okay. it's important to maintain and if possible, increase your muscle mass. So exercise does that. All right. Is there anything more fun than <laughs> exercise that might speed your metabolism, like eating spicy food or green tea, lots of caffeine? I've heard all of these so things. So those things can help at the margin. For example, drinking ice cold water can help a little bit, can burn a few really? extra calories because you think about it, the water itself has no calories, but 
to warm that water up requires about seven calories. So if you drink a cup of water, it requires calories to warm that water up. So if you drink a lot of cold water uh, throughout the day, that might help a little bit. And we're talking ice cold water. Now, also, um, you mentioned spicy foods, things like chili peppers. Um, there's some evidence that then might... Chili peppers and then lots of cold water. Yeah, Wash them right, down exactly. Although I guess the water won't really help counteract that. Drink milk, right? <laughs> oh, um, true. But the uh, there is some evidence that... Uh, Spicy foods can rev up, increase metabolism a bit, just a little bit. Um, same with caffeine. So people who drink several cups of coffee a day may experience an increase in metabolism. Now, that said, um, you also, if you drink a lot of coffee, if you eat a lot of spicy peppers, your body becomes desensitized. So you're less likely to have an effect if you consume a lot of it. So that's one uh, downside there and limitation to how effective that can be. Something that I think is more effective in terms of food would be protein. Because that's for two reasons. Number one, that our bodies actually use more calories digesting protein than we burn digesting fat or carbohydrates. Wait, really? Yes. Why is that? Okay. First of all, to me, in my brain, for some reason, I thought because fiber is a carb. Isn't fiber a carb, I believe? Yes, it is. So I have heard if you eat a lot of fiber, your body doesn't digest it and those calories don't count. So I'm a little surprised, A, we can touch on that, and B, why it takes more calories to burn protein than it does to burn carbs. So that what you just said is true. The reason that the body does not, uh, the, the, the reason that you don't get calories from fiber, at least insoluble fiber, that's the kind that's in wheat bran and, and whole wheat um, because it goes right through. Essentially, the body doesn't digest it, and so it just goes right through you. Protein is different because the body does digest it, but again, we use calories digesting food. About 10% of our metabolism overall goes toward digesting the food we eat. Uh, of the energy that we expend goes toward digesting food. And protein um, compared to carbohydrates and fat actually uses more energy. Um, a, a bit more energy. So if you eat more protein, uh, say get protein at every meal, eat, make, make sure you eat snacks with protein when you have snacks, that can help rev up the amount of protein you have and therefore the number of calories you burn. That is good to know. I love protein. What's your go-to protein? Uh, my go-to protein at meals, I get. I try to get protein at every meal, which I think is important. So I'll eat eggs in the morning or uh, often uh, and chicken and fish. Um, which are both certainly chicken and certain forms of fish are good sources of protein as well. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about packaged foods. I am pleased personally to see that there are so many packaged foods that contain fewer ingredients that are all natural, that are organic. They're so accessible. You know, we used to be told just shop the perimeter of the grocery store. I kind of feel like people don't do that anyway, that anymore. That's like an antiquated way of approaching shopping. Do you think that all processed foods are less good for you than natural foods? Let's talk just a little bit about processed foods and packaged sure. foods. Sure. Well, ideally, we want to eat more whole foods, right? That's every, everybody agrees on that. With all the disagreements in diet, nutrition, one thing everyone agrees on is we should all eat more whole foods, unprocessed foods. So that's, that's a given. But it's not realistic that we're going to all eat all whole foods all the time. Packaged foods are part of our diets. No matter how good your diet is, it's going to involve some packaged foods. So the key here is that not all packaged foods are created equal. Um, the concern is so-called ultra-processed foods. We've been hearing a lot about those recently. These are foods that have chemical additives, things like preservative, preservatives, 
artificial flavors, colors, um, emulsifiers, things like that. Um, so the, what the studies show in cr an increasing body of evidence is that these are linked to a host of health issues, everything from um, heart disease, diabetes, um, recent studies have linked them to depression and anxiety, even cognitive problems. So a growing list of problems that are linked to these ultra processed foods. Um, and there's evidence showing that they contribute to weight gain. And there are a couple of theories as to why, um, what the, the, the thinking is that people tend to eat more of these foods because they're so-called hyper palatable. That means they're just easy to consume. They're designed that way. So you eat more of them. Think of Lay's potato chips, you know, mm -hmm. you can't eat just one. And so they're designed to cause you to overeat them. And also they have a texture so that you, they're soft. They tend to be soft. So you just keep eating. And by the time your brain catches up and realizes that you're full, you've eaten a lot of them because, you know, there's a delay between the time we eat and the time that our brains tell us we're full so that we tend to eat more of these by the time we realize that we're full. But as you say, it's unrealistic to avoid them entirely. So I think what's important is to look at the ingredient label and to look out for as short a list of, as possible of ingredients on the, on the box, on the side of nutrition facts. And then also um, some people say, look at the list and see if there are ingredients that you wouldn't recognize as ingredients you would use in the kitchen if you were making something, right? Mm -hmm. So if it has unpronounceable names of things as opposed to oils or spices, then consider that a red flag. I remember this commercial. It was an ice cream commercial from when I was growing up. I think it was maybe Briars, And there was a child reading the label. This was so many years ago too. And it was like so ahead of its time. And the kid was like, Polly, Polly, Polly. And then the announcer says, Polly Sorbet 80, Johnny. Do you remember that? No, <laughs> but that's just, perfect. That's right. That's exactly what we're exactly talking about true. here. All right. But to that end, my question is, because there are a lot of foods now that say only four ingredients or they list the actual ingredients on the label. But my question is, um, going back to this added fiber and the whole idea of insoluble fiber, which your body doesn't digest the calories. I see so many products now that have things like inulin and chicory root and they're, they're foods that wouldn't normally have any fiber or more than one or two grams of fiber. And then you see they contain 21 grams of fiber. And when you look at the calorie counts, they are so low. A, do you believe the calorie counts are really that low? Like your body doesn't digest that fiber that was just thrown in there to lower the calorie counts? And B, is that fiber still good for you at all? So I'll answer the second question first. And that is that this kind of, I call it fake fiber, this isolated fiber that's added to foods um, has not been shown to have the same benefits as naturally occurring fiber, the kind of fiber you find in fruits and vegetables and whole grains. So we can't say that it has the same benefits, number one. Number two, um, yes, you're right that in many cases, manufacturers will subtract those, the calories from that fiber because they're allowed to do that. If it's insoluble fiber, uh, manufacturers can subtract those calories because the thinking is that, that those calories, that that fiber passes right through us, and so it doesn't contribute calories. There's some controversy, though, about whether it contributes calories and how many, whether the number should be zero or one or two uh, or more. Now, ordinarily, they would have four calories mm -hmm. per gram, and so whether it's three or two or one, it's unclear. So there is controversy about whether it's actually zero. Um, so... You're right, though, that a number of manufacturers add this, these isolated fibers to their products to uh, make them seem healthier and also it lowers the calorie. And this can create a health halo so that you get what is essentially an ultra-processed food. And perhaps the fake fiber 
uh, makes it ultra processed because it's yet another uh, additive, chemical additive that's put in there. Um, so that you think you're getting a healthier product because it has a lot of fiber and maybe lower calories, but you're essentially getting what is an unhealthy product because it um, it's it's an ultra processed food because of this fiber mm-hmm. in part that's been added. So I think people need to be careful about that. Right. So if you're getting like a pack of gummy bears, it's like normally just candy that would be sugar. And all of a sudden you see it has 26 grams of fiber. That's like you should, it's a little bit of a red flag, right? Right. And I think it's important to, to, because this is the way that food companies essentially deceive us. It's one of the many ways that they deceive us by trying to take what is essentially a not so healthy food and adding some constituent to it, in this case, like protein, and making it seem healthier than it really is. Uh, in the past, this has been done with adding vitamins uh, to, for example, to cereals that are chock full of sugar. Mm. Um, it's, it's done in a number like of ways. Like fruity pebbles. Didn't they always add vitamins? <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe I'm just yeah. thinking of Flintstone vitamins. Um, <laughs> something else I would add is we need to be aware of is these, we've talked about this before, but these buzzwords that are added to not so healthy products, to ultra processed foods, things like natural, organic, organic, GMO free, gluten free. Yeah. And the list goes on and on. So the products that actually are not so healthful, um, have these buzzwords on them. And then people think, oh, well, this is a better version of cookies or chips and I'm going to get this. It's better for me. When in fact, it's still junk food. Right. Like people think if they shop at Whole Foods and everything is all natural, that it's fine and, and they're going to be healthy no matter what. But that's just, that's not necessarily true. After they've paid more money for it. Yes, that's true. But, you know, the good news is a lot of that uh, healthier whole food type of foods, those are available now at Walmart and Target and you can get things that are, you know, more natural for less money. So that's a good thing. All right, Robert, are you ready for a speed round? Okay. I don't know what this, if you know what this is, but okay, I'm lying. This was your idea. You are we'll the see how creator speedy I can of the be. speed round. So the speed round is we're just going to like hit on a few topics and see if you can give us like a very quick answer. Okay. First up, is it a good idea to take a multivitamin daily? It depends. So if you are on a very low calorie diet, if you're a vegan, if you have some medical condition that doesn't allow you to eat a normal diet, then yes, it can be a good idea. For everybody else, probably not. There have been lots of studies that have tested whether taking a multivitamin is better for you in terms of increasing your energy, making you think better, decreasing the risk of diseases, and so forth. And study after study has failed to show that for most healthy people, there's a benefit. So I'd say for most people that uh, it's not necessary if you eat a normal diet. Okay. I know this. I'm not supposed to do a part two on the speed round, but I can't help it. If you do take a multivitamin... Do you have to take it after you've eaten some food or can you take it on an empty stomach? It's better to take it with food because that is less likely to cause stomach upset. Great. Okay. How much water realistically should we be drinking in a day? You should drink as much uh, until you are not thirsty. So I think that the, uh, we know that the uh, rule we hear all the time is everybody needs eight glasses of water, eight by eight, eight, eight ounce glasses of water. The truth is there's no basis in science for that. And so you have people chugging water all day long because they think they need to drink. But in fact, for most people, thirst is this exquisite mechanism we have for telling us when we need to drink water. And for most people, that is adequate indicator of when we need to drink water. I I think it makes me full, so I like it, which I guess that's another benefit. Well, yes. And so I think when it comes to weight control, this is an important point. There are studies that show that when people drink water, specifically the studies show two eight ounce cups of water, 30 minutes prior to a meal. Um, and this is for middle-aged and older people that can actually decrease appetite, 
and so help help with weight management. Younger people, you need to drink closer to the mealtime just because their bodies empty the water out more quickly. Uh, but that can be helpful to drink. Now, it doesn't mean you need to chug water all day long, but uh, as I know you talk about, drinking water can help people feel more full and decrease the amount of food they eat. Great. Next up, chocolate. chocolate. I know you love chocolate. I, love, I have my chocolate every day. <laughs> is chocolate really good for me? And if so, is it only dark chocolate that's good or is milk chocolate good for me as well? So the answer is... Uh, there, it's possible dark chocolate is good for you. Definitely dark chocolate as opposed to milk chocolate. But I would say the benefits have been hiked. And I say that as somebody who loves chocolate and eats it every day. I wish it were true that it were a health food. There are some studies, most of them funded by the chocolate industry, by the way, that show Smart. there are cardiovascular benefits when it comes to chocolate. The problem is to get the amount of chocolate you would need, you'd have to eat five, 600 calories or more of chocolate to get the amount of the, the active ingredient, so-called flavanols, which is a type of antioxidant that's thought to have these benefits. So you need to eat a lot of chocolate. And so obviously that's going to be a bit counterproductive if you're eating five, six more, 600 or more calories of chocolate a day. To Wait, get I have benefits. an idea. What if you take something that's already high in those things or like super healthy and you dip that in chocolate, like raspberries are really good and strawberries. If you dip those in dark chocolate, that has to be Super well, the, the key is though, are you getting enough from that dip to make a difference? So I would just say make that- Make the dip really thick. If, if, you, if you enjoy chocolate and particularly dark chocolate, I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, by all means eat it. And I, I eat it because it helps satisfy my sweet tooth. And so that's why I do it. And I like dark chocolate. I know a lot of people don't, but I like dark chocolate. If you're going to uh, go for dark chocolate and you want to maximize the chances of getting something healthier, number one, look for- Seventy uh, percent or greater cocoa, because the, the the higher percentage of cocoa, um, the better. Now, obviously, the higher you go, the more bitter it gets. And number two, look for uh, look at the ingredient list where it, uh, cocoa is the first ingredient as opposed to sugar. Okay, and you said the higher you get, the more bitter tasting, not better, right? The more bitter, <laughs> the more yes. bitter it is. Okay, okay, you're gonna love this question. What three foods should everyone eat regularly? Hmm. Well, I'm going to respectfully reject the premise of that question, <sighs> that there's such a thing as foods that everybody should eat. You know, we hear this all the time from uh, the food industry that certain foods have magical properties, that they're superfoods. We hear this all the time about specific foods. The truth is no individual foods have that kind of power over our health that can make that big a difference uh, when it comes to our health. Um, now, clearly some foods are better than others. Broccoli is better than French fries. We know that. But when it comes to thinking about what to eat, it's better to think in terms of broad categories. So we know what those categories are. We hear them all the time. Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, seeds, nuts, lean meats, fish, and so forth. Um, and there are lots of choices within those categories, obviously. But I think the better way to think about this is not in terms of foods we must eat that everybody must eat, but getting foods in those broad categories. Okay. <laughs> that is an answer. So the three foods are really fruits, vegetables, and whole grains or nuts. The nuts. So there would be more than three, but yes, broader calorie. And, okay. and, and if you count water as a food, certainly I would say water. Everybody needs water. Okay. What about sodium? That's the number one thing I think the Hungry Girl audience is complaining about. Always, every single person seems to think that no matter what, sodium is the devil and you have to stay within a certain number of milligrams of sodium a day. And if you don't, you're in major trouble. What is the, what's the reality of that? 
The short answer depends who you are. Not everybody's equally susceptible when it comes to the uh, downsides of sodium. Certainly people who have high blood pressure or are borderline high blood pressure should be concerned about sodium because studies, lots of research show shows that if you lower your sodium level, that can lower blood pressure. So the less salt you eat, that's more beneficial when it comes to blood pressure. As for others who do not have high blood pressure, it's murkier as to whether lowering your sodium is going to make a difference. There's also controversy over how much is too much, what's high. Um, just to throw out a few numbers here, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but um, currently the average American consumes about 3,400 milligrams of sodium a day, okay? Most health authorities would say we need less than that, about 2,300 milligrams, so that we eat more than is, is recommended. Um, some Authorities go even lower than that. American Heart Association says ideally 1,500 milligrams. So there's some debate that's about- really low. Yeah, that's very low. That's half of what people currently eat typically. So there's debate about where to draw the line. Um, and, and some people even say that if we get too little, that could be harmful. And there's so there's a lot of scientific debate. But I think for most people um, who are, do not have high blood pressure, probably if they, unless they consume a lot of fast food, a lot of packaged foods, which tend to be- uh, really, really uh, some of the leading sources of sodium, which have obviously all kinds of health consequences, which you don't want have to do. They have a lot of health consequences, so there are reasons not to eat those foods. Um, I think m for most people, it's less of a concern. And so what I like to say is that what you should be most concerned about depends on your individual situation. Obviously, we can't all be concerned about everything, right? So if you're thinking about what to eat, we're told to be concerned about the calories, about the sugar, about the protein, about the saturated fat, about the sodium. We can't be concerned about everything equally or we'd never eat, right? We'd never be able to eat anything. So I think what you prioritize really depends on your situation. So if you have high blood pressure, yes, by all means, prioritize sodium. But for me, for example, it's not an issue for me, so I look more at the protein and at the sugar. Other people might look at the calories or other constituents of the food. It doesn't mean you ignore everything else, but it also means that you prioritize whatever uh, is most relevant to your situation. Okay. I know this is really not speedy at all, but I want to ask a follow-up question. Let's say you have no blood pressure issues. You have no heart issues at all. If you have 4,000 or 5,000 milligrams of sodium a day, is that bad for you? What could it do to you? Well, there are some experts who would say that is bad, that it could increase your uh, blood pressure uh, and others that would say it may increase the risk of heart problems. Again, that's not proven. It's theoretical. Um, I would say most people would say that 5,000 is definitely an upper limit. So if you get above five, it's not great. But again, that's more than most, that's uh, well above what most people get. Um, and if to get that much, you're probably eating, again, a lot of fast food and or packaged foods to get that much, which is a problem. Okay. So I would say that, um, yeah, there's no question. Most experts would say that too much at that level is a problem. We might revisit this in a future podcast, um, because I know it's an issue for so many people. Robert, thank you so much. Have you brought any books to sign for people? Or can uh, we give away some of your books? We will do that. Yes. Uh, awesome. I brought Supersize Lies and, uh, that's my latest book and I'm happy to sign and give away books. Perfect. Thank thanks, you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, that was amazing. And if you guys are big fans of Robert from before or now after the show, you can check out the Foodcast page at hungrygirl.com slash foodcast. So you know exactly how to find him. We will link to all of his books and where you can find him on social media and all of that fun stuff. And of course, we are giving away copies of his book, 
just text Mikey at 805-380-8075 and let us know why you'd like to win a copy of his books. And of course, Robert has signed two books and we're happy to give them both away. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and review us if you have not done so. We will be back next time. That's two weeks from today with another food haul. So we'll be back to chewing and reviewing. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Lisa Lillian, also known as Hungry Girl. Till next time, chew the right thing.